Y'all, it's so great to see all of you here this morning. If you have not been with us, uh, we are in the middle of a Giving for His Glory uh, sermon series as we look at stewardship in God's Word. And so as we get into the last week of this, hopefully nobody's saying, praise the dear Lord, we are finishing this series. We are in the last week of this series. And just to remind you where we've been, I think it's important to understand each week what we're looking at in God's Word regarding the topics of giving and the topics of stewardship. So I want to give you a brief recap to introduce where we're going to be this morning. So one, week one, the title of the sermon was Stewards of a Gracious God. And we talked about the idea of giving must begin with God himself. God is the rightful owner of everything. He's the gracious giver of everything. He's the abundant provider of everything. In the second week, the title of the sermon was Worthy of It All. In 1 Chronicles 29, we saw how David makes this claim, God, it is just a gift for you even to allow us to give because all of it is yours. You're worthy of everything. And we saw how even the opportunity to give to God is an act of grace from God. The third week we came together from Haggai 1 and we looked at priority problems. And we saw what happens whenever God's people disobey in giving. And a better way to say it is what happens whenever God's people start looking inward versus looking outward. And we saw all sorts of issues there where the big question that I asked you is, is giving to the Lord a priority of yours? And that's not important because of something we're doing. That's important because the way you spend your money is the greatest indicator of what and who you worship. Which leads to week four, whenever we talk about what happens whenever God's people do obey him. And we saw that whenever God's people obey him, he blesses them. But not the way a lot of times we might think. Oh, if I give to God, he's going to bless me financially. That's not what it says. It says that they blessed him, they, God blessed them with his presence. God blessed them with his power. God blessed them with provision in ways they could have never seen. That's what happens whenever God's people obey. But so now we get to week five. Initially, this sermon series is going to be four weeks, and as we get to the fifth week, we ask, what else is there really to cover? We've talked about all sorts of different things from God's perspective, from our perspective, stewardship, giving. Are there any additional principles that we need to consider? And I think there absolutely is. And so as we come to the conclusion of this series, we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to look at an extraordinary story about giving that Paul gives to another church to encourage them and challenge them in this. And it might not be for the same reasons that you might think. As we look at this, we're going to see how he tells them the nature of true giving for a follower of Jesus looks different this side of the cross than it did that side of the cross. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to be looking through the first nine verses. And before we even jump in, just so you know the background of this text, the church of Corinth was very, very dear to Paul. It's very dear to Paul because Paul was the person who planted the church in Corinth. It was there from his missionary journeys. He planted the church, but he also spent an extended amount of time there. He lived there for 18 months. He was a tent maker. He taught during the afternoons. And he helped be a part of building up this church. Well, whenever he left to go on mission, we see that the church of Corinth went haywire, to say the least. You go read through 1 Corinthians. That's his letter he writes to them whenever he hears about all of the mess that they were doing. And Paul is almost dumbfounded as he writes to them. And you can just read it through the pages. These are people that he loves, and they've gone so far astray. What we see is he sends them a letter. Things don't get better after that. So he goes to visit him. Things don't get better after that. 
What we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is we know that Paul actually writes another letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's often known or called the secret letter, where apparently he lays out his heart. So much so in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, I wasn't trying to be harsh. I just wanted you to see what I was trying to say. I wanted you to see I care for you. I don't want you to miss Jesus. Then we hear that they responded actually well to him, which is what led to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, he's writing to them to encourage them, but to challenge them. If they are in Christ, they must continue in him. They must live in him. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is often called the forgotten generosity chapters. You want to talk about New Testament giving, you look no further than 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And while we don't have time to walk through all of it, we are going to walk through the first nine verses of chapter 8 and see what is, what is the heart behind what Paul is trying to say. Let's begin. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. It says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The title of the sermon this morning is The Heart of Giving. The Heart of Giving. What I'm proposing that God's word teaches us this morning is this. The follower of Jesus does not ultimately give because of the need or the cause. The follower of Jesus ultimately gives because of the grace of Jesus that has already been given to them. They give because it is their heart's desire to do so. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, as we come to you this morning, God, help us see, as we wrap up this series in stewardship, God, help us come back to this is the main point. God, help us recognize that even series regarding stewardship aren't ultimately about money. It's about something else. And Father, this morning, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to accept, and wills to be molded by you. Father, please put your words in my mouth and keep my words out of yours. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, something about me is I absolutely love stories. I love stories. I love to have stories. I love to tell stories. This was a point of contention early on in my marriage. Uh, I don't know if this has happened to y'all before, but uh, whenever Emily and I first got married, we moved to North Carolina. And about a few months into the marriage, she tried to lovingly tell me something. She said, Merritt, whenever you're around like all of our friends, you kind of dominate the conversation with stories. Somebody tells a story, you got to back it up, or you got to back it up. And so we got in that conversation, and 
I said, okay, I need you to let me know whenever I need to just zip it. You know, like that's a golden opportunity for a wife. I was trying to be a good husband. And so we came up with this plan whenever she's sitting beside me. If I feel the two tap on the leg, that means you're good. Time to hush, right? Like it's the, it's the tap. Many of you men understand that. You've experienced that. You know that. But the truth is, is I love to tell stories. I love to hear stories. Always have. I can remember growing up saying, you know what? Before I did something really dumb, oftentimes, I would say, look, if this works, it's going to be awesome, but if it doesn't, it's going to be an awesome story, right? It's going to be neat to be able to tell later. Some of my favorite stories, and I bet some of your favorite stories, are ones that make you go, wait, what? Like, what happened? How did that happen, right? Some of my favorite stories are stuff that's happened in my life or things that I literally have to say, look, I promise you, I know it sounds impossible, but this actually happened. But what we have this morning is a story that'll make you go, wait, What? It's a story that's challenging from top to bottom. But what's neat is that God's people are being exhorted by Paul. The church in Corinth is being exhorted by Paul, and he's using a story that is just, wait, what? What's going on? And he uses the story to help them see something that's missing. He uses the story to help show them something. And he uses the story to prove a point. And I want to walk through the story. By introduction again, or, or introduction in this, as Paul begins, I want you to see what he says in verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What's neat about this story is this story is a story of grace. It's a story about the grace of God. He says, I want you to know about this grace that's happened in this church. Now, whenever you and I think of the grace of God, what do you typically think of? I'll tell you what I don't normally think of. I don't normally think of giving. And that's the grace story he's about to tell them. I want you to hear about the grace of God that's happened in the churches of Macedonia. If you don't know, the churches of Macedonia would have been comprised of the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, and the church of Berea. And he says the grace of God is sweeping through them and doing a work amongst them, and it's incredible, and this grace act is the act of giving. He wants them to understand Christ-like giving is a grace of God. And Paul says, I want to show you this example, and I want you to see the point And I want you to respond. And Paul says the same thing to you and me this morning. So look at the example that he shows us. We'll read again verses 2 through 5, just to get the lay of the land again and then walk back through it. This is the example of the grace of God he wants us to see. Verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, these churches of Macedonia, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. He's pretty neat. He's talking about this grace of God that is sweeping through these people, and he says they were giving. The grace of God was amongst them in a way that we did not expect, in a way that we could not have imagined. And so we're going to see the three ways that he says this. He says, the grace of God, let them give a certain way in the midst of three different things. The first thing we see is once again in verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The first thing that Paul points out as an example is this. The grace of God led them to give despite their circumstances. Point one, the grace of God led them to give despite their circumstances, despite what they had been going through. This is almost hard to imagine here, right? 
in a severe test of affliction, they have abundance of joy, they have deep poverty, and yet it's overflowing in a wealth of generosity. Look, I haven't done math in a really long time. Well, I shouldn't say I haven't done math. Obviously, I have to do math every once in a while. But I haven't taken a math course in a really long time. But I know this much. I know at no point in my life or have I seen it where severe affliction and extreme poverty lead to joy and a wealth of generosity. It just doesn't add up. Right? Something seems off about this. It makes you say, wait, what? Paul, what are you saying? He says, look at the grace of God triumphing over their circumstances. You see, trials couldn't stop the grace of giving in these people's hearts. They gave even though there was a severe test of affliction. How could they do that? Well, the grace of God in them. They had abundant joy while walking through these afflictions. How could they have that? Well, the grace of God in them. They were experiencing deep poverty. They were struggling financially. How could they give? Well, because of the grace of God in them. See, friends, we have to understand whenever it comes to giving, anything, giving in relation to the mission of God, giving towards God's church, giving towards his mission and vision, any giving must be an act within the heart. And this is what he's trying to point out for them by showing them, look, it didn't matter what was going on in their circumstances because God's grace triumphs over those things. I like the way one one author, David E. Garland, says in the New American Commentary, he says, in the New Testament, we see something strange, and it's this. The Christian experiences joy and has no, this joy has no correlation to his or her outer circumstances. What's incredible in the book of Acts is we see people giving generously despite the circumstances in which they found themselves. So what's the example? One, they were giving despite their circumstances. But what else? What's the example that we see here? Look at verse 3. He doesn't just say that. Verse 3 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Here we see the second point. The grace of God led them to give despite their circumstances. Secondly, the grace of God led them to give sacrificially. The grace of God led them to give sacrificially. Now, if you read this verse right, you should have paused and said those same two questions or same phrase, wait, wait, what? These people are experiencing circumstantial issues. They're experiencing a, a, a strain on their finances, and yet they're giving according to their means, which you would say, well, what means? They didn't have a lot. They were giving beyond their means. Wait, what? How are they giving this way? Paul says, simple, the grace of God is working in these churches. Which leads to verse 3 again, the very end. Notice how he says it. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means. And how did they do it? Of their own accord. Which leads to the third point. The grace of God led them to give despite their circumstances. Two, sacrificially. And three, willingly. This is a striking point that God's people were giving of their own accord. It was not coerced. It was not forced in any way. If anything, it was the exact opposite. You get one of the bigger. Wait, what's going on? Verse 4. In verse 4, he says, he says, they're begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, this giving, I'll talk a little more about this later, but this giving is giving towards the church in Jerusalem that is experiencing financial crisis. And these people who are going through their own issues, who are struggling financially, are begging the apostles, let us be a part. I don't have any other story I could tell you where I've seen this happen before, honestly. 
I've seen plenty of stories that are incredibly unfortunate that go completely against this text. Whether it be a pastor or another ministry leader, force people to give. Guilting people into giving does nothing. It is anti-biblical. Hear me say that. Forcing people to give of their money is not what God wants. This is the example. They gave freely. They gave willingly. Trying to make people or guilt them into it doesn't work. I heard a story this week that I found somewhat interesting, but I'm kind of glad the way that it ended. Is There was a radio broadcast in a local town that was doing ministry, and they had taken up a poll of the people that were around them, and they had found that if every single household gave $67 to them, then they would be able to continue their radio program for the next year. And so they sent out letters to all of these people saying, hey, if you just give $67, we can continue doing this. But they included, and if you give to us, we promise you God will give back to you fourfold your amount. To which one of the guys takes it, and finally after getting this letter, I don't know if he got it once or twice, but he was annoyed by it, so he writes a letter back to them. And he says, I'll tell you what, how about you give me $67 and God will bless you fourfold? which is a pretty good point, is it not? The point of this idea that if I give to God, then God is going to bless me because I'm giving to God. Friends, you've missed the first point. He's the owner of it all. He's the giver of it all. He's the provider of it all. It all comes from him in the first place. And the point that Paul's making here is their hearts. They were begging, can we be a part of this? Can we do this? And I love it, verse five. And this was not as we expected. We were surprised by this. What would compel a group of people to do this? What would compel a group of churches in the midst of circumstantial issues not do the natural response? Friends, is it not natural whenever circumstances are tough or finances are tight for us to turn completely and look inward? It's just a natural response, is it not? It's so easy to do. It's what we think. We've got to think about this. What would compel a group to do the opposite? to still look outward. Well, I want you to see a point that he makes in verse five. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. You know, as I've looked and seen how some other pastors or leaders use this text or, or preach this text, several of them start with verse 5. Because they say, this is the whole point. This is the impetus for everything that happened before this. First, they gave themselves to the Lord. So in other words, the churches in Macedonia were giving their money because they'd already given all of themselves to the Lord anyway. The point, that's the point that Paul's trying to make. He's saying, helping them understand, whenever you give yourself to the Lord, whenever you become a believer in Christ, you've already given all yourself to them, which should lead to you giving yourself to him. Does that make sense? They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by God's will, they gave themselves to us. Friends, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You give yourself to him, all of yourself to him. And I love how one author says, whenever you give financially, it's merely a visible sign of an invisible grace you've already experienced. Hear that again. Whenever you give financially, it's merely a visible sign of an invisible grace that you have already experienced. See, friends, the goal of giving is not your money. Giving ultimately isn't even about your money. It is about the heart. 
is supposed to be out of the overflow of the heart. It's an expression of already giving yourself to God. Therefore, everything in your life is included. So I ask again, as we come to the end of this, I think this is a fitting conclusion. Do you understand first and foremost, God is not after your money. He's after you. Do you understand that what it means to be a Christian is not to do certain religious things? It's not to give a little bit here. It's not to be a part of a campaign like that we're doing. It's about giving yourself to God. Do you understand that whenever you follow Jesus, you must surrender to the demands of the gospel? Whenever Jesus went and called all of his disciples, he never once said to them anything other than, follow me. What did that cost them? It cost them leaving something, did it not? The word we use for that is repentance, turning from something and turning to Jesus. How do you follow him? You repent and you place your faith in Jesus. This is a change of direction, and with that change of direction, you say, everything that is mine is yours. I heard a really neat story this week that Alistair Begg, maybe some of you have heard of him before, but he's an awesome Scottish pastor who's in Ohio, which is kind of comical to think of it that way. But it's awesome just to listen to him talk because anybody that's got an English accent, you already know it's fun to listen to him. He's telling the story about this Englishman who was baptized one time. And it's been known, it's been circulated because of how odd the baptism was. You see, there was a man in this community in England who was a wealthy man. He was known for his material status. He'd also been known because he was not a fan of Jesus. He was openly antagonistic against the church, but someone continued to invite them in. And eventually he went to a Bible study. And after going to the Bible study after a while, he came to recognize that Jesus was the Lord and Savior of all, and he repented and he placed his faith in Jesus. On the evening that he was to be baptized, he shows up. And I don't know how you're supposed to show up then, but there were multiple of them supposed to be about to be baptized, and they were all dressed differently. But he obviously stood out differently from them. Most of them were wearing, you know, some sort of swimming trunks, or some of them were just in jeans. They were just in very common clothes. He shows up, and he's in a three-piece suit, nice shoes, just decked out from top down. There's a lot more details about it. He has a nice silk Silk tie on. He has a satin vest over him. He just looks like he is fit to a T, which is very symbolic of who he'd been. A wealthy man, a man of status, who whenever he walked in the room, you're like, this guy has money. And so somebody asked him, why in the world would you do this? Well, whenever he got up to share, because in these days, you had to share a public testimony before you were allowed to be baptized. In his testimony, he explained why he had dressed this way. And he simply says this, because I recognize that this suit my tie, the quality of my shoes. It represents everything that I hold dear in my life. And I've decided to be baptized in all of this clobber so I might remind myself and you always from this day forward that Jesus has all of me. All of me. Friends, whenever we talk about giving, we're talking about the heart. God doesn't want anybody to coerce anything out of you to give a cent to anything. God wants it to be out of the overflow of your heart. And so the question that I want to conclude this whole series with you thinking about, one of the main questions I should say is this, does Jesus have all of you? Does Jesus have all of you? You see, the churches in Macedonia gave their money because they had already given their hearts. The act of grace was amongst them in this regard because the act of grace had already take, p- taken part in their hearts. 
And the true challenge of this passage is that. Does Jesus have your heart? Notice how Paul continues. He gives them the story. He gives them the example. And then notice where he goes with it. Verses 6 and 7. He says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. What do you mean, complete this act of grace among you? Well, you need to understand a bit more about the background to know what's going on here. The church in Corinth had known about the issues that were going on in Jerusalem. They'd known about the financial strain. And a year prior, you could actually see that if you look down in verse 10 and 11 and 12, which we're not going to be able to get to all of that today, but 10, 11, and 12, you'll understand that they gave a commitment a year before that they would give towards this, but for some reason they stopped doing it. And so Paul is telling Titus, Titus, go and complete among them this act of grace. In other words, they said they were going to do it, but they didn't do it. In other words, Paul is calling into question their motives. Why would you decide to give? Why would you say you give and then you stop? And so he gives them the example of the Macedonian church who's going through all these things and yet they still are faithfully giving. Now you might say, well, isn't Paul coercing them in this? Paul isn't the reason they gave the initial commitment in the first place. You should also understand this. The church in Corinth was incredibly wealthy while the churches in Macedonia were poor. And unfortunately, these churches in Macedonia weren't even asked to take part. Instead, they start begging, we've heard about this need. Can we help? And then you have the church of Corinth who says, we will help. We will take care of this, and yet they aren't. Paul's calling them onto the carpet. Which leads to verse 7. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. Excel in this. Understanding that this says something about your heart, which leads to verse 8. Don't miss what he's saying. I say this not as a command. Once again, I'm not commanding you. I'm not coercing this. This is not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. What's his point? He's saying simply this, guys. I'm not commanding you to do this. It nullifies the grace if I do that. But if the grace of God is in your heart, this love will be genuine and you will continue doing what you said you will do. In other words, you will help out of a giving heart. Again, giving is a matter of the heart. It must not be coerced. It must come from the genuineness of one's heart. Indeed, what Paul's saying here, what we've been saying throughout all of this, what you do with your money is the greatest indicator of what's going on in your heart. We've read it several times, but just to read it again, Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, this series has been one of the most difficult ones I have ever taught through in my life, and it's for one simple reason. Money is the closest and most sensitive aspect to talk about in a church because it is the closest to the heart. It has always been that way. It will continue to always be that way. And the reason for that is, as J. Vernon McGee, famous pastor, says, money is the most sensitive area to discuss because of simply this reason. It is still the truest test of the heart of an individual. You get to the money, you get to someone's heart. Because ultimately, it's not about the money. It's about the heart. See, the truth is this. As we see in this passage, whenever you experience the grace of God, you start to feel the gratitude for what God has done for you. Whenever you feel the gratitude of what God has done for you, you experience a generosity that comes out in your life. 
The three G's. I heard numerous people talk about as I studied this week. It's grace to gratitude to generosity. That's the model. That's what you see. That's the act of grace that works out in people. Because giving is a matter of the heart, but giving is also a revealer of the heart. It shows what's inside of you. You zoom out and look at numerous stories in the Bible. You see this all over the place. Think about Jesus whenever he's talking to this young man who seems to have it all together. We call him the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, I've done everything. I've got all this down. Church attendance, you name it, being nice, you name it, being moral, you name it. I've done all of these things. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be perfect, go do this. Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What does he do? He walks away. And it says he walks away because he had great possessions. In other words, did he worship God or did he worship money? He worshiped his money. But then you see a very opposite thing whenever you hear about Zacchaeus, the wee little man who was wealthy. What happens, what happens in his story? Jesus goes to his house. He says, I'm going to your house today. You almost can't say it without singing the song. I'm not going to sing the song. But he goes to his house today. And what happens? Zacchaeus surrenders to Jesus. He places his faith in Jesus. And then what happens immediately following? He says, I'm going to take half of my wealth and I'm going to give it to the poor. And if I have messed with anybody's money, if I, have, if I have forfeited them, if I have defrauded anybody, I will give back four times that amount. Because why? Once his heart changed, what happened? He experienced the grace, the gratitude that led to Christ-like generosity. Friends, this is the reason why as you look at this passage, it's odd. You don't hear a word about the condition of the people in Jerusalem. You don't hear a word even about ultimately the need, the reason he's calling for money in the first place. You don't even see him talk a word about it. Rather, he goes to something else to help them see the act of grace in God's people. And then ultimately, he gives them verse 9, which is the greatest impetus for giving. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this grace? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's no telling how much money has been spent on documentaries of people who've gone from rags to riches. We know those stories so well that we actually have names for them. They're called rags to riches stories, right? We watch them. You know what's interesting is I've never actually seen a documentary on a riches to rags story. See, usually because that shows that somebody really mismanaged their money. It shows that they at some point had some addiction to something that cost them everything that they have. We, we think of that as a tragedy, and yet what did Jesus do? His story is that of a riches to rags story. But a riches to rags story because he says, I'm doing this for you. Notice the way Paul puts it. He says it to them. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he was in heaven. He had everything. He was in perfection. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He humbled himself and came to earth. He didn't just come to earth. He came to earth as a servant. Not just as a servant. He came to die. Not just to die, but to die the most brutal death possible to show us. I will stop at nothing to save you. I will stop at nothing. I will strip myself of everything that in your poverty you might become rich. Jesus did that because he knew the end, right? Jesus knew that because he knew he would die, but three days later he would rise again. He would be in glory for all eternity, and he calls his followers to think the same way. 
Do not live like this is the end all be all. Live now like Jesus, recognizing that one day, whenever all is said and done, I'll be with him and I'll have everything. That's why Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, not here. Y'all, as I've read this story, I've had to repent because I have been shocked over and over and over again by the Macedonian story. I read it and I go, man, this is incredible. This is unbelievable. But the truth is, is the Macedonian story should not be surprising to us, should it? It shouldn't be a rare example of the generosity of God's people, should it? Shouldn't it be what happens whenever God's people take God seriously? Shouldn't it be what happens whenever Christ's church says, I want to be like him? Friends, it never fails. Children look like their parents, act like their parents, dress like their parents, especially early on in life. You see it early on. It's funny right now. Ellis is playing in a little basketball league. It's funny. The kid who has Jordans, you typically look at the dad, the dad's rocking Jordans, right? Like you see it all throughout. The way kids dress, the way they act, they're just like their parents. It's not shocking whenever a kid does that. In that case, it shouldn't be shocking whenever a Christian gives willingly, wholeheartedly, and sacrificially. Why? Because that's what the Father did for them. It shouldn't be shocking whenever a Christian gives willingly, wholeheartedly, and sacrificially. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for them. And Jesus says, follow me. Come and live like me. God says that his goal for everybody who's in him is to conform them to the likeness of his son. In other words, the goal of every Christian is to be more and more like Jesus. So in other words, you could say in this whole story, the Macedonian churches actually aren't the example. Jesus is. The Macedonian churches weren't actually setting the example. They were just following the example that they had already been set, the example that had been set by Jesus. They merely were just following in his footsteps. In the end, God's people give because they can't get over how much they've been given. It's about the heart. The churches in Macedonia gave their money because they'd already given their hearts, and this is what Paul is highlighting. Isn't it odd to note he doesn't say anything about the amount? He doesn't say this is how much the churches of Macedonia gave because ultimately it didn't matter. It's not about the amount. What's it about? It's about the heart. That's why what he highlights is the heart. Regardless of the circumstance, they gave. Sacrificially, willingly, they gave their heart. They were begging for us. Let us be a part of this. And ultimately, guys, this was a very poor region. I can almost promise you the amount that they gave for the church of Corinth, they would have gone, that was it? But God doesn't judge based on the amount. He judges based on the heart. Let me show you the whole point of this. Turn to Mark chapter 12. It's a story that many people know, many people reference. But I wonder if we understand the point. I wonder if we understand what Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples and what he's demonstrating to us as well. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to look at verses 41 through 44. Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. It says, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to, 
to him. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now again, I'm sure many people have heard this story, but do you understand what Jesus is saying? We see Jesus is sitting there, and he sits across from the offering box. Now, if you don't know, the offering box in that day would have been made of some type of metal or something that would have been very, very easily heard whenever people put money in. Money during that day was based off of weight. Our currency today is based off of what is actually on the currency. For them, it was the amount, the weight of it. So whenever people would put large sums into the offering box, it would just sound like like a machine just dropping in money. As these people did it, people who saw them would say, oh my goodness, they're giving amazing amounts of money. God must be pleased with them. Then you see this poor widow come by and drop in two pennies. I can promise you it wouldn't even have gone tink, tink, almost, right? It says Jesus is sitting there and he's looking. And I want you to think, what did people see? People saw this group giving large amounts valued by God. This woman giving a small amount not valued by God. And yet, isn't it odd that Jesus says that he saw the exact opposite? He says something so crazy. This woman put in more than they did. Now, is that a true statement? No, that's not a true statement. They didn't put in, you know, she didn't put in more than they did. So is Jesus lying? No, no, Jesus just doesn't measure it the same way you and I do. You see, we measure based off of amount. That's not the way Jesus measures. He measures based off of the heart. The hearts of the greed and the wealthy who sacrifice nothing in their giving, who gave out of their abundance, who affect nothing about the way that they lived. These religious leaders would have been giving, sure they'd have been fine with giving. They were wealthy people, sure they'd have been fine with the 10% that God called them to give. Sure they would have been fine with that because it cost them nothing. But for this woman, he says, this poor widow sacrificed all that she had to live on. What is Jesus showing us? He shows us this. Giving is not measured by a simple percentage in one person's life. You see, for many of us, whenever we think about giving, we think, I've given my 10% and now I'm good. Friends, God does not call you to give based on this percentage. He calls you to give based on a heart that is filled with gratitude towards him. Paul talks a lot about this in 2 Corinthians 9. He actually tells them, God has given to you that you might overflow in generosity to others. In other words, God blesses his people that they might give to other people. Don't miss that God did not judge these people based on how much they gave. He judged them based on how much they kept. He judged them based on how much they kept. It changed nothing about their life. Friends, do you think the Lord still sees what's put in the offering box today? Yes. Is the point of this story, we should all just empty our bank accounts, throw it into the local church, and be done with it? No, that's not the point of the story. Again, that's coerced. That's not the point. The point is, is are are our hearts mended to that of God? Have we given all of ourselves to him? Have we said, God, all that is mine is yours, however you want to use it? Do you seek to see how, Lord, why have you blessed me the way you have? How can I give? the way you call me to give. Does God still see what's putting in the offering box? Yes. What does he see? Does he see the amount? Yes, he does. But how does he judge the amount? It's simple, by our hearts. Friends, you could give 20% of your income and not truly be giving. You could give 2% of your income and maybe you are. 
The point that we see simply is this, is you must give out of the overflow of your heart. It is a matter of the heart. Now I'll go ahead and tell you as we get to the conclusion of this sermon, I've struggled to end the series with this text. I've struggled because I don't want you to misconstrue anything about a building with this text. But I've also been encouraged, even as I got to talk in between the services with someone, that we're ending this stewardship series recognizing that this is not about a building, it's not about a budget, it's not even about a cause. Ultimately, the impetus is Jesus. It's about him. It is for him. It is to him. It is out of reverence for him. To be even more clear, let me say it this way. The end goal of the giving campaign and stewardship series is not a renovation. It's not a larger budget. It's that our hearts might be more conformed to Christ. It's that we might look more like him. You see, there's a grave danger in doing a series like this. There's a grave danger in looking at a building. There's even a grave danger in saying we send money to go on missions. There's a grave danger to even do, have a larger budget here. And the danger is this, to think that that is the end goal. Friends, you can give money and your heart not be changed a bit. God wants your heart. That's what he wants. None of the things that we do are ends in and of themselves. They're only means to help us use what God has blessed us with for his name and his renown. Friends, why do we call this whole series Giving for His Glory? Because we must not forget if the end goal is a renovation, we've missed it. If the end goal of giving to a church is that we might just do a lot of neat stuff, we've missed it. The end goal is saying, God, all of me is yours. Do with it what you will. As the people of God, we give as his children. It is an act of grace that he works in our hearts. In other words, we give joyfully because that's the heart of a Christ-like giver. We give sacrificially because that's the heart of a Christ-like giver. We give willingly because that's the heart of a Christ-like giver. Followers of Jesus give because they desire to be like Jesus. That's the reason. They want to be like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we move into a time now to respond, Lord, I pray, I desperately pray, use your word in our hearts. Father, may us at this time stop and just listen. And listen first to understand that this is a matter of our own hearts. God, help us ask that question first and foremost. Are we yours? Is all of us yours? And Father, may any of the money matters flow out of that one. God, help us see what you want us to see this morning. Spirit, convict our hearts and show us yourself. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. As the worship team begins to play, and as in a minute we're going to stand and we're going to sing, I just want you to ask a few questions of yourself during this time. The first question is this, is have you given yourself to the Lord? Is your life his? Friends, if, if the answer is no, or if the answer is I don't know, that's where you need to start. Have you given yourself to him? The gospel message is simply this. Jesus came, and he lived the life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserved. 
And he says, repent of living for yourself. Repent of going your own direction. Place your faith, your trust in me and come and follow me. Friends, you can do that this morning. Where you're at just by simply saying, Jesus, I give my life to you. If you've done that, then as we look at the topic of giving, I ask simply this, do you give out of a desire to be like Jesus? Is the number one reason you give because it's a duty or because you are devoted to him? Whatever helps go forward with the mission of his church, I am for it. I am giving towards it. Are you devoted to him? Does your giving model that truth? Another way to say it is what does your giving reveal about your own heart? Do you seek to give regardless of your circumstance? Do you seek to give in your means and above your means out of devotion to him? Do you seek to give not because you feel forced to or because you have to, but because you genuinely say, God, I want to do this? Which leads to the last question. It's simply this. Have you experienced the grace of God in giving? Friends, whenever you experience the grace of God in giving, over and over again, you're reminded who's in control of this world. Over and over again, you're reminded who is sovereign over all things. Over and over again, you're brought to the throne of grace, to Jesus. I'll be down here on one side. Luke will be up here on the other. If you want to come talk to one of us, but I'd ask you, however you need to respond during this time, please do so.